Second uh, Corinthians chapter 13 is where we're going to be today, and we're going to end this book together. Um, today is the last day that we're going to be uh, going through the book of Corinthians. We're going to start our next series in Romans, and I am pumped about the book of Romans. That is the book of books. If you are new to the Christian faith or, or asking questions about the Christian faith, uh, joining us in the book of Romans, Romans lays a beautiful foundation on what it looks like to follow after Jesus and understanding the truths communicated in Scripture. In fact, it's been said about the book of Romans, if you lose all the books of the Bible but have Romans. Uh, as a believer, you've got the truths of what you need to pursue after the Lord. So excited to get into this. And, and as we get ready to conclude Corinthians together today, this has been a beautiful book that we've gone through as well. And, and one of the things that's really nice that ties in Corinthians to the book of Romans is when Paul's about to make his final journey to Corinth, uh, as he's writing this letter, he, he goes and visits Corinth, and it's during this next visit to Corinth that he actually writes the book of Romans. And so these, these two books tie together in a beautiful way, but the book of 2 Corinthians, if you, as you've gone through this with us together, this is, this is the most personal letter that the Apostle Paul has written in all of his epistles that he wrote in the New Testament. Uh, this, this letter deals with the way that he's been personal attacked and how he's broached that. And I, I've shared with you just some, some easy ways to look through the book of Corinthians. If you go back and study this again in any personal time in your life, the first seven chapters of Corinthians, uh, Paul deals with his personal relationship to the church of Corinth, and he's teaching them about their relationship with God as they deal with the tension that exists between them uh, because they have rejected the apostle Paul and, and have been pursuing false teachers. And so Paul's, his heart has been to continue to, to put himself out towards the Corinthians uh, to reconcile that relationship, though he is not to blame. But Paul knows that their rejection of him uh, ultimately leads to, to the rejection of Jesus because he is an apostle, and therefore in the first century, the, the mouthpiece of Christ on this earth. And, and to reject Paul is to reject Jesus. And Paul's not primarily interested in really what they think about him as much as he's interested in what they think about Jesus. And so first seven chapters of 2 Corinthians deals with that relationship. And if I maybe give you one verse to kind of hinge uh, all, all of those first seven, chapters on. There's a lot of good uh, verses and chapters in the first seven chapters of, of Corinthians, but chapter 5, verse 17 is sort of that pinnacle verse that people point to. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And it goes on to, to talk about you being, therefore, an ambassador in Christ, uh, begging the world to be reconciled to Jesus. It's a beautiful section, chapter 5, verse 17 to 21. But I, I love when he refers to us as a new creation, there's so many, so, such theologically rich thoughts expressed in that. And I think one, one of the things that is helpful in what Jesus is saying there is understanding who Jesus was in, in, the, in light of how Israel rejected him. Israel had this picture of when the Messiah would come, that he would dominate the world and restore, and they would lead this geopolitical kingdom that Christ was going to present. And when Jesus was crucified, they went from shouting on his triumphal entry, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, to, to reject him because of the shamefulness of of being crucified. But, but Paul reminds us that the purpose of Jesus' first coming was to reconcile our hearts to God so that when we see him at his second coming, we're not under the wrath of God, but rather the grace of God. And, and Paul says that beautifully when he refers to us as a new creation a new creation in Christ. Because if you remember in the beginning of the Bible that when God speaks, life begins, that was his original creation. And creation rebelled against God and sin devastated the world. And now we have become enemies of God because of sin. But Jesus has come and he's given his life for us so that we could be made new, that we would become a new creation. So that when Christ returns, we're not under the wrath of God, but rest under the, the grace of God and the joy of his presence for all of eternity. It's a beautiful picture in 2 Corinthians 5 
five. And then, and then uh, verse chapter eight and nine goes into the idea of generosity and a good mark of measuring uh, you, your maturity in Christ is to see whether or not you carry a good spirit of generosity in the Lord. And in chapter nine, verse seven, it tells us God loves a cheerful giver, not one that gives reluctantly, but they see their position in, on this earth as representing his kingdom and have a delight to serve for the king. And they use the resources that God has given them uh, to be a blessing to the people around them, to this, to this world, in order to glorify God. And then in chapter 10 uh, to, to, to today, the end of this chapter, Paul's dealing with the false teachers. He goes directly towards the false teachers that have crept into this church and poisoned the attitudes of the church towards the apostle Paul and gets very personal in it. But one of the things I love about Paul is that while, while the, the false teachers that they call themselves super apostles come in and they brag about their charisma and how great they are and how wealthy they are and look how good they are, you know, the, the apostle Paul, when he comes in to, to brag about himself, rather than highlight himself, the Apostle Paul chooses to live in his weakness. In fact, it's one of the themes that we have on this in this banner is God's power made known in our weakness. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, that's what Paul says. I would rather boast my weakness that the glory of God would be made known. Paul rested confidently in Christ. And as we get to the end of uh, this this chapter 13 today, starting in verse 7, Paul's going to conclude this by by helping us with, with two uh, ways of, of living out our Christian life. One is in the area of prayer, and the other is in the area of maintaining a, a godly perspective. Now, we'll deal a little bit with that godly perspective and why it's important in just a moment, but, but this morning I, I want to talk to you about uh, prayer, and then we're going to talk about a godly perspective, and then we're actually going to cut our live feed because I want to share something personal I think that will uh, apply practically in, in living this out in our lives, something important for our church family, I think, exclusively to know this morning. But in dealing with the, the thought of prayer, godly prayer, and, and why it's important, why it's essential in our lives, it, it's important to, to see the purpose which God has created prayer for us, uh, one of the most essential duties and privileges uh, for the life of a believer is to have the opportunity to pray. And, and I know sometimes in our life we, we, may, we may have experienced the place where we've asked the question, why, why pray? Some may see prayer as unimportant. Some may see it as boring. And so we might ask the question, why pray? And let me just say, if you're, you're, your life has ever hinted towards that question or maybe even asked that question, can I... Can I be just a little forward this morning and say, sometimes the reason we, we ask that question is because our lives aren't fully engage, engaged with the importance for which we have been called uh, to live in light of Christ. And what I mean by that is when you're sitting on a couch looking at an electronic device of some sort, numbing your brain into a meaningless existence, you're going to ask the question, why pray? But when you begin to realize anything that you do for the Lord in this world requires his spiritual power at work within you, when you've invested in Christ and you've given your life to Christ and it has cost you to pursue Christ and you've sacrificially contributed towards what his kingdom asks of you to live intentionally for that purpose, you don't ask the question, why pray? When you wake up like our brothers and sisters of Christ around the world and you realize in pursuit of Jesus that your life is really on the line, you're not asking the question, why pray? 
The, the thought doesn't even cross your, your, your mind because you understand the importance for which prayer exists. Prayer, prayer is not about pleasing God. Prayer, prayer, prayer is not about God sitting up in heaven and, and saying, oh, I just need people to talk to me. I feel unimportant, right? I mean, there is some pleasing in God in prayer, and there's some glorifying God in prayer, certainly. But, but, but prayer doesn't primarily exist because God is this needing, needy being just looking at you saying, oh, I wish they would just talk to me. I, I, I feel inadequate and, and, until they say something to me, right? Prayer primarily exists for you as an opportunity to connect to God because you can't do what God calls you to do in this world without that relationship with him. In fact, in Hebrews, it says this in chapter 4, verse 16, it says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. God doesn't need us to talk to him but we certainly need the Lord. And prayer is a gift. And in Hebrews, it's as if it's saying to us, you get to come directly before the presence of God. And, and, and not, not just come before the presence of God because, because you belong to him, you've been adopted if you're in Christ. You, you, you get to come before the Lord boldly and what God brings you in his presence is this, this beautiful picture of mercy and grace ready to, to minister to your soul in your hour of need for whatever you're, you might be seeking God for. This is a, a privilege to not take lightly, to think the King of kings, Lord of lords, allows you into his presence. And the way that Hebrews paints this picture is, if you remember in, in, in Israel's day in, in the Old Testament, they, they had this temple, and the temple is where God's presence dwelt directly. They only had one temple, and they only had one room where God's presence was made known, and only one person could enter that room one time of year and it had to be the high priest and he had to do it after after going through this ritual ceremony for the removal of his sin before he would even be allowed to enter into that throne and now suddenly into the new testament every believer in christ is able to be thrusted before the presence of god to seek his face and to find grace and mercy in their time of need prayer is a privilege it is, it is a gift for God's people to be able to connect to the Lord. And what a gift it is to know that no matter where you are and whatever you're going through, God wants to hear from you to the point that the King of Kings allows you to enter into his presence boldly and his heart is to give of himself towards you in grace and mercy. And while we see the, the, the significance of prayer, learning what to pray is, is, is important as well. I mean, as people, there is this maturity, I think, that should happen in the life of the believer to be able to leverage prayer to the, to the, to the, uh, to the ability for which God has created it and permitted it for us. But I find sometimes in the life of believers, we tend to use prayer as a tool simply to enhance our creature comforts. Like when we're living life the way that we just simply enjoy life and there's not a lot of obstacles in front of us, we, we rarely think about prayer, but all of a sudden when something difficult happens in life, now, now we become very prayerful and, and we engage prayer in the sense that we just want God to bring things back to where we enjoy them in our creature comforts, to only shelve that relationship with God again until we have something that we don't like and we, we then use the idea of prayer as if he were this genie to, to serve us in, in our creature comforts. But prayer, rather, in Scripture is, is better communicated to us as a way to experience God in His glory. See, our prayers, they, they tend to focus on, on the storms of life. 
But, but Paul, and we'll see this even here, that Paul tends to focus on the heart of the individual going through the storm. We're all about creature comforts. But Paul's prayer tends to be about strengthening the heart of the believer no matter the circumstance. And it almost begs the question, why settle for fixing just the, simply the circumstance when we can have the power of God's presence no matter what we go through? And, and learning to read in Scripture uh, and, and examine the way that Paul writes his prayers uh, before the body of Christ helps us to kind of learn what does it look like to begin to pray maturely. I don't think it's, there's anything wrong with, when there's adversity in your life to pray in light of that adversity. But to simply end with the, the physical things that we go through in life is to drastically fall short from the way that Scripture tends to communicate prayer. And in fact, if you grab notes this morning, you'll see I, I listed a handful of prayers in which the Apostle Paul, uh, or at least the references where the Apostle Paul writes prayers before uh, the church. Like for example, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18, to know what is the hope of God's calling and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance and all the saints and what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. Paul's desire for the Ephesians chapter 1 is really to experience the depth, depth of who God is. And in experiencing the depth and recognizing that that God is promised, his presence is promised to be with the, the people of God, no matter the circumstance, they, they have an anchor on, on no matter where the journey is leading in, in their lives. In, in Philippians chapter 1 verse 9, that love would abound still more and more in the real knowledge and all discernment so that they would approve the things that are excellent and be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Colossians 1, verse 9, that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, walking in a manner worthy of the Lord and please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God and strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. It's a little different than Johnny's got a cold, please take Johnny's cold away, right? It's, it's to experience the depth of who God is no matter, no matter what you go through in life. And Paul then, in light of all that, Paul in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 7 begins by talking about prayer. And he actually mentions really two, two thoughts as it relates to prayer. And I think they're, they're connected to one another. But this is how he begins to end his, his letter here. He says, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong. I know some of you have been like, you read a verse like that, and you're like, finally, I, I've been trying to explain to my spouse for years that I've never been wrong, right? It's because the Lord answered the prayer. I am the answer. <laughs> I've never, but Paul's saying this, look, uh, my, my prayer for you is rather, rather that you would walk in the truth. Remember that the, the, the church was in error up into this, this moment because they've been pursuing the, the teachings of uh, of these super apostles, which were contrary to Christ. It was a different Jesus and a different gospel. And Paul's saying, Here, here's my prayer for you, that you would walk in, in truth, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. And I, I love, here, Paul's even prioritizing this. I, I want you as a church uh, to walk in the truth. And, and here's how important it is uh, that, that that's be experienced in you. 
that I, I would rather see that happen for you than to be more concerned with what people think about me. That's what Paul is saying here, the passing of the test. So you remember the Apostle Paul, they're saying the Apostle Paul is not a true apostle. In fact, he talks a big game. He's going he's gonna to write this letter to you and, and act like he's going to show up like he's tough. But when he shows up, he's going to be weak. This guy has been beat up. He's been mocked. He, he's been whipped. I mean, you don't want to be like Paul. He's destitute and he's poor. And when he shows up, he is, he, he, is, he is not the kind of guy to impress you. And Paul's saying, and in writing this letter, he's saying, I'm, I'm going to show up with my apostolic authority unless, unless your heart be given to the truth. And if your heart's given to the truth, I don't need to come in with my apostolic authority and to show people who's really in charge. Matter of fact, the, the claims that they're saying against me, I'll just show up in my weakness and they can continue to say that. Because I would rather see what God wants to do in you than to really give a rip about what people think about me. My heart is for you. And Paul and carrying that theme of this thought that they would not, not be, do wrong in this prayer. Paul then says in verse 8, For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Um, verse 8, <clears throat> I, I, I think even in our own culture, we have in the last, I don't say decade, started to experience what verse 8 really means in, in, a, in a practical way. Because I say like in, in our culture today, things that I thought that our culture would push, that, 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 that our culture is pushing, pushing today, I think 20, 30, 40 years ago just seemed unimaginable. And, and, and we as a people, we are a relational people. And we enjoy acceptance from one another. And, and we don't like to feel like we're isolated taking a stand for ourselves sometimes. In fact, I would say most of the time. We like to run with crowds. We like to feel like we belong. And, and Paul is saying, look, not only do I want you to stand for truth, but, but Paul's recognizing in verse 8 that sometimes it's hard to stand for what is right because it's not always popular. But I, I want to see you so confident in the truth that no matter if every voice in the world speaks against what you're for in Jesus, that your heart would stand for Jesus. And when we stand for Jesus, can I just add to this? That we not do it in anger against other people, but that we do it boldly in love for others. Paul's wanting to see a church that's confident in the truth of who God is, that no matter what the world throws at them, they walk in the joy of that truth because they know that their heart is not about pleasing people, but rather pleasing the Lord. When you think about prayer, and you ask the question, what should I pray? Because this is a beautiful prayer for your church, especially today. And you think about your family, maybe your children and the future that they might be raised up in. You think of all the things that you could pray for your children. This is an incredible prayer to pray. God, make their heart strong in your truth. So much so that Paul is saying at the end of this that he would gladly, 
We're glad when we are weak and you are strong. Paul so much so believes in this prayer that he is willing to take the form of of a continued servant on their behalf, that the strength and truth of who God is would be made known in their life. And then he says in the second half of verse 9, the second part of this prayer, not only that they, they walk in the truth, but he says that your restoration is what we pray for. This idea of restoration, it's, it's not a wrong translation. I think it does carry light of where Paul has been with the church. I mean, there's been a lot of conflict in this church, and they've, they've walked contrary to God's truth, and he, he wants to see them restored, certainly. But the, the, the Greek word here also has this continuation of more than just simply the restoration of what's been wrong, but that their life would continue to pursue God in truth. And rather, rather than just simply restoration, it also carries the idea of being complete, being adequate, being fully qualified, being, being su- sufficient. God, that not only do they, do they know the truth, but their life be complete in, in walking in this all of the days of their life. Perhaps an English word that best aligns with this would be the idea of integrity. Uh, The word integrity is defined this way as one whose thoughts, a person of integrity is defined this way. It's one whose thoughts, beliefs, words, and actions are all in perfect harmony. As believers, we'd say in submission to the truth of God's word with nothing inconsistent. Paul's prayers continue to echo with this aim throughout Scripture. For example, in Galatians 4, verse 19, My children with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. Colossians 1, 28, Proclaiming Christ, admonishing every man, and teaching every man with all wisdom so that, they, that we may present every man complete in Christ. And again in Colossians 4, 12, Always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. Paul saying, in fact, if I were just to summarize this letter in verse 10, he says, For this reason I write these things. You want to know what 2 Corinthians is about? It's to see Christ formed in you. That is, that is my heart's desire. That is my prayer uh, as I think about God's community. As Paul saying this to the church of Corinth, for this reason I write these things, to see this while I am always from you, uh, while I'm away from you, excuse me, uh, that when I come I, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. One of the beautiful things I think I I just shared with you here in the beginning is when Paul does end up in Corinth with the church, there's only indication that the body of believers did turn their hearts to the Lord. Because when Paul writes the book of Romans, he ends with Romans by referencing believers from Corinth wishing and desiring the best for the church that is in Rome. If you want one great prayer in Scripture, one prayer that just transcends the difficulty of circumstance but prepares the heart no matter the situation it's in, it's right here with the way that Paul ends the book of Corinthians. That they would know the truth and walk in the maturity of that all of their days. I just think if there's just one consistent, beautiful prayer that you could pray over your children every night, 
as God's giving you the responsibility to direct that heart. One, one beautiful prayer that you could pray over your spouse, over your friends, over your family. That they may know the truth and walk complete in all the days of their life. Not only does Paul then talk about prayer, he, he ends this book by talking about maintaining a godly perspective. Maintaining a godly perspective. And, and, and this is important because sometimes we get so distraught over the battles that we face that we fail to put perspective on the fact that we as believers have already won the war. We as Christians, though, though it is true that we, we've won the war, we don't get to control everything in life. In fact, because we walk in a broken world, sometimes the things that we experience, that we, 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 we walk through these tensions in life that, that we can't always resolve every difficulty that we, we go through. And sometimes because we go through those tensions, they, they can capture our hearts and our minds and we start to lose perspective of the greater thing in which God has called us to because we want to control a situation so much so that we can't let go of it. And we just sit in that and, and it starts to control us. But, but Paul in these moments, just he, he takes that step backwards and, and just reminds us that as we have won the war as believers, we're going to experience battles. And in those battles, there are these tensions because they're not always resolved. And, but there's a way that we can approach those, those tensions that we can't always reconcile, that we, we, we can leave them at a place to sort of put them on a shelf. And if, if God works something there, that we can come back to them and see the Lord mend those things. But there are tensions. And Paul doesn't want the church to lose focus from what God has ultimately called them to do in moving forward. You can't control everything. But you can control how you respond to it. Not every relationship that you have in this world experiences reconciliation. But God does call his people to be forgiving. And, and when we're forgiving, or at least we open the door for forgiveness, when someone responds repentantly, then, then there is this place of reconciliation. But you can't dictate that reconciliation. All, all that you can do in this world is recognize because of relationships, there will, be, there will be these places of tension because they're not always resolved. And you can control who you are, but you can't always control what happens and the way people respond. So, so you live in light of what God has called you to be because you realize that you've won the war and, and you don't have to uh, manipulate the way every circumstance goes. And this is how Paul approaches this these final moments, when he says this to the church in, in verse 11, he starts here. He says, finally, brothers, rejoice. Rejoice. It's as if to say here at the end of this letter, we have focused very specifically on the problem. right? And we've talked about the problem, and we've opened opportunity for reconciliation in the problem, but we can't dictate how this is going to go because we're not always in control. There's two people that are involved here, right? Two groups. But can I remind your heart in this moment? Could you just take a step back to, uh, rather than looking into the weeds, just get that 30,000 foot view of all that God has accomplished and is going to continue to accomplish in you? Because when, when your perspective it goes to this place, your, your heart is able to rejoice. In, in scripture, there are many warning passages 
And I think part of the reason that the Lord has allowed warning passages to exist in Scripture is sometimes they can, difficult circumstances can, can catch us off guard. And we become discouraged. When we become discouraged, we become disoriented. And we lose sight of who we are and what God has called us to in this world. In fact, in, in the persecution of the church, in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, uh, to, to, to Peter writes to the church, Do not be surprised by the trouble you're experiencing. 1 John chapter 3, verse 13, John says the same thing to the church. Do not be surprised by this. Don't let, let this captivate your heart so much that in the discouragement, you lose sight of what you ultimately have in Jesus because this, this can take you off course. You can't control everything. There, there are tensions in life, and, and you don't have to be dogmatic about those tensions. Just put them on a shelf. The Lord may do something with them later, but don't lose sight of what God has ultimately called you to in this world. And the way that our heart reminds itself of what we have in, in the Lord is this idea of rejoicing or rejoying. Um, when Jesus was, was being crucified, in the Gospel of John, those final moments he spent with his disciple, disciples in John 13 to John 17, after he declared to, him, to them that he, he was dying, they certainly felt defeated. But do you know the theme of what Jesus expressed to his disciples in those chapters? Jesus is facing death. And he begins to teach his disciples some of the most intimate teachings in those chapters. And do you know the theme of those chapters? Joy. Joy. Out of all the subjects Jesus could have chose as he was about to go to the cross, I mean, he's either in, in, uh, in crazy or incredible, right? I mean, you think about the end of your life, out of all the last speeches that you could give, what would be the primary thing that you would focus on? And Jesus, for Jesus, it's joy. He says, these things I have spoken to you. He told the apostles, gathered in the upper room so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. John 15, verse 11. And then he promised them, I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and no one will take your joy away from you. John 16, verse 22. And he asked the father that his, uh, uh, that his followers, and, and John 17, verse 13, may have his joy made full in themselves. The joy of the Lord. Christian joy is not a giddy, superficial happiness that can be devastated by illness or economic difficulty or broken relationships or uh, countless other disappointments in life. Instead, it, it flows from a deep, unshakable confidence that God is eternally in control for his beloved children, and it's a confidence rooted in the knowledge of his word based on the promises that he delivers to us. Rejoicing. Rejoicing while you have the tensions in your life. It's this stepping away from that perspective in, in those weeds to just take a step back and remind your soul of what you have in Christ. 
the promise of his presence, the power of the Lord with you, both now and for all of eternity. You have been forgiven. You have been made new as a creation. It's not about impressing the world in your strength, but rather, as Paul has taught us, in your weakness, finding the strength of God no matter where you are. He's with you. Rejoy in the truths of God. Don't be surprised by the trouble of this world, but remind your heart that he is with you. That when you face adversity, God's heart grieves in that too. That's, that's why Jesus came. Jesus came to make all things new. That God is for you and that God is with you. And it's on the backdrop of that rejoicing then that he gives the basis for these words that follow Paul. Paul gives us these five thoughts at the end of, of 2 Corinthians to help our hearts uh, to reorient itself with a godly perspective despite the circumstances that we're going through. And Paul's saying to the church, look, Corinth, I'm sharing my heart with you. And not, not everyone's going to agree with this. Not every heart's going to align with this. But for those who, who have been called out that want to pursue Christ in, in community together, we can't lose sight of, of the greater picture of what Jesus wants to accomplish in you, waiting on everything, waiting on everyone. Sometimes in life there's a tension, and you've got to just put it, put it on the shelf and, and let the Lord deal with that in his own timing. The hearts can always turn around. We don't have to be dogmatic and just push it away forever. We don't have to force the change in it. But you can control who you are. Rejoice, And then he goes on from there and he says this, aim for, aim for restoration. This means mend your ways, be mature, focus on who God has called you to be. Comfort one another means be encouraged in, in the Lord and what God has desiring you to do as a community. Agree with one another means being of the same mind. It doesn't mean you have to agree in everything, but it does mean to be purposeful, which God has called us to in him, and live in peace. Help us to enjoy this journey. As our, as our focus remains fixed towards this as a church, we get to enjoy this in peace with one another. And then the result of that, he gives us this thought. And the God of love and peace will be with you. We experience the goodness of God as we experience the beauty of what God desires to do in us and through us as his community. And then he gives us these interesting words here at the end. He says in verse 12, greet one another with a holy kiss. We'll practice that here at the end. I'm just kidding. I'm going to do that. All the saints greet you. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The end of this letter, letter I love it. You see them moving forward in the way that he is describing the outward expression of moving forward is through this weird thing called a holy kiss and, and the saints greeting each other and the, and the grace of God uh, being made known in their midst. And what he's saying is, as you put on these things in verse 11, start to demonstrate it in your community. The idea of a holy kiss, obviously, we, we would label that more of a, as a cultural thing that we don't do uh, here in America. It would probably better read fist bump or something like that. I don't know. Handshake and a hug, whatever, whatever is best in, in the greeting of one another. But, but what it's expressing is a community that cares about each other, a community that's for one another, and a community that's living in pursuit of what God has called them to together. 
That's what you're seeing in verse 12 and 13. And, and as he shares this with us, what he's also saying is there is a God who is working in our midst, in our midst too. In verse 14, notice at the very end, he involves the triunity of God working on our behalf. You see, the, the grace of Christ and the love of the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit moving on our behalf. And I love, at the end, he gives this, this Trinitarian benediction. Why? There's this famous quote. Uh, I know I usually share stories at the end of our time together, but I don't really have one about this guy. This guy, um, Alexander McLaren, he, he was a pastor in the 1800s, and he was just faithful to Jesus all of his life. That's all you need to know about him. But, but this is a quote that he uh, said at one point in his life. He says, peace comes not from the absence of trouble. To have that sort of expectation is ridiculous. And no matter what path you follow in life, you can rest assured there will be trouble. With Jesus or without Jesus, you're going to experience trouble. Peace comes not from the absence of trouble, but from the presence of God. Our pursuit in life is not just to simply experience no trouble. That is an impossibility. But to recognize in the Lord there can come a peace as we go through difficulty. And it's not because every circumstance is under our control, but it's because we have a healthy perspective of who we are in light of God, and we know in, in, at the end we win the battle. And in the moment, his presence is with us to strengthen us for the journey. The Lord is the one who gives us the power of his presence to cope and the ability to hope beyond life's struggles. Can I tell you, church, if you're going through a difficult time, sometimes I know we get to those places and we ask the question, God, where are you? But can I tell you, the cross of Christ screams, I'm right here with you. I'm right here with you. The adversity we face in life is not contrary to Jesus. Jesus' heart grieves in the difficulty of this world and the sin that it brings. That's why, Jesus is, that's why Jesus came. Your heart is not warring against God when you experience adversity, but your heart screams out for justice just like Jesus. And, and no matter what we go through in this world, one of the beautiful things that we can be reminded of is the opportunity we have to pray, to connect to God, and ask him to give us the strength to, to not only know the truth, but to, to walk in that truth and to live it for his glory. And reminding ourselves that while we can't solve every tension, we can rejoice in a God who is always with us. This message has been brought to you by Alpine Bible Church in Lehigh, Utah. If you'd like more information, please visit us online at alpinebible.com.